You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing our study through the book of the Gospel of Matthew. And we come to kind of a new section this morning in Matthew 13. And so we want to spend a little time laying down this foundation today. And uh, I really want to uh, say it's been fun teaching through the parables of uh, Matthew 13, and we've concluded the seven parables in this chapter, and now we come to the final section of Matthew uh, 13, and we'll take uh, probably two weeks to finish this up. But I just want to want you to follow along as I read our text for this morning, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come... To his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We get the theme for our message this morning, the danger and power of unbelief from that last verse. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I think we know and we understand the power of faith as Christians. We understand the power of believing in something bigger than us, i.e. God. The Lord, as a matter of fact, even said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that you can do impossible things like remove mountains. That's the power of faith. That's the power of faith. Of believing. The people in the Old Testament in Numbers 21 believed, and it says they looked to the brazen serpent and they were healed of their disease in the Old Testament. You remember that? David believed God and he was enabled to uh, slay Goliath. Abraham believed God and he became the father of a great nation. Daniel believed God and the lions could not harm him. Over and over again, we see throughout the Bible when people believe God, Great things happen. Israel believed God and they walked across the Red Sea away from their enemies on dry land. The children of Israel believed God as they marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls fell flat. Even Naaman the leper was, he believed God and he was healed of his leprosy. We know the story of the three young men the Hebrew men in the Old Testament who believed God and they stood in the midst of a flaming, burning furnace and yet they were unhurt because of their belief, because of their faith in God. In the New Testament, we see Martha who believed God and her brother was raised from the dead. That's pretty miraculous. A lame man was healed because he believed God. A noble man had his son raised because he believed God. We see various accounts of lepers believing God and being made whole. The centurion believed God and his servant was made well. 
child of a father was made whole and healed because the father believed. Two blind men received their sight because they believed. We see in the New Testament a woman who reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed because of her belief. Jairus, Jairus believed God and the daughter, his daughter was raised from the dead. Remember Peter, he believed Jesus and he was able to walk on water. When's the last time he tried that? The Philippian jailer believed God and it says he was saved in his whole household. So we kind of understand the power of believing. We understand the power of faith. People believe God in God every day and, and put their faith in Christ every day and they're passed from death to life. That's what the Bible says. And we see that going on around us. If we went around the room, we could give our own accounts, our own testimonies of how we had passed from death to life because of God's miraculous hand and our willingness to believe in something bigger than ourselves. That's the power of faith. That's the power of believing. Well, that's one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is there's also a power, there's a danger of unbelief. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Just as the believing saves the soul, the person who believes in God and trusts in Christ for salvation, his soul is saved. And it enables supernaturally the power of God to be unleashed in your life when you believe God. So unbelief halts, stops, squelches the full release of the power of God. Verse 58 in our text says, He did not do many mighty works there because of what? Because of their unbelief. Can you imagine something so powerful that would stop the Son of God, the one who created everything around us, from doing mighty works? That's the power, that's the danger of unbelief. The power of unbelief could stop God from doing what he could do. This isn't a name it and claim it message this morning. We're not into that kind of theology. So don't get nervous. We're just kind of going to introduce this subject today. But I want you to understand how this text, first of all, fits within the message of Matthew. What's the message of Matthew? That Jesus is who? King, right? Jesus is king. We've been looking at that for a couple of years now, over and over again. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. We saw it in his birth. We saw it in the genealogy. We saw it in the, the Magi coming. We saw it in the announcement of John the Baptist. And then he began himself, once his ministry began, to give us credentials of his kingship and his kingdom. He began to perform miracles and he began to share messages that just astonished people. And he presented not only himself as king, but he also brought forth and presented his kingdom to people. Over and over, you see John the Baptist and Christ saying, repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. And at the end of all the evidence, at the end of everything we've seen up to this point, basically, most of the people looked at Christ and they looked at his kingdom and they said, you know what? We're going to reject it. And they rejected Christ as Messiah, they rejected him as king, and therefore they rejected the kingdom. And so really, we're looking at a king who's been rejected. 
That's what we're looking at. And just to bring you up to speed, and you remember in, in Matthew 9, as he looked out over the masses of people who were headed for judgment, he asked for prayer that the Lord would bring forth laborers and that he would send forth his laborers. And he asked his disciples to pray about that. Well, little did they know that they would be the laborers that they were praying for. <laughs> and so we find in the following chapters, the Lord says, okay, great, you prayed for laborers. Well, guess what? You're it. That's all there is. And so I've got to spend some time training you. And that's what he did in Matthew 10. And you see the rejection of the people begin to mount more and more and begin to kind of turn up and amp up. And he begins to train his 12 disciples. And basically, he summed up all his training in Matthew 13 where he said, you know what? I have to have you understand that the kingdom of God is not what you expect. And I have to have you prepared so when you go out there and you begin to preach the kingdom you're going to encounter some animosity. Not everybody is just going to say, oh yeah, I want to hear more. Their Jewish mindset thought, well, when the king comes and he sets up his kingdom, that's it. Anybody who stands up against the king just gets wiped out. Well, that wasn't the case. And so what Christ had to do is he had to explain that because they rejected the king and they rejected his kingdom, he kind of put the kingdom, you might say, on hold. And he said, now my kingdom, rather than me carry it out here on earth, that's going to happen at my second coming. I'm going to come back to earth and physically I'm going to rule and reign here with an iron rod on planet earth. But until that time, I'm going to leave this in your hands, disciples. I'm going to mediate my kingdom through you and you're going to be the beginning of something that is just incredibly large called the church. And it's going to affect every facet of life, every area of the globe. And so he wants them to know how the world is going to react to them when they go out into this lost and dying world and share about the message of the king and his kingdom. He didn't want them to be caught off guard, and so he shares parables with them. And the major mark of all the parables, basically was that during this time, during the church age, during this time where God is mediating his kingdom out through his people here on earth, there's not only going to be good, but there's also going to be evil. And they're going to coexist. And they're actually going to grow up together. That's the, that's the message of the parables. It's a time of good and evil. It's a time of faith and unbelief. Believing and not believing. And that was something foreign to them. So he had to prepare their hearts for it. And so he said, as you're going to go out into the world, you better expect that some will believe and some will not. And to illustrate this, and this is kind of laying down our foundation for next week even, but there's eight situations, eight incidences as you read through Matthew 13, 14, 15, and 16. And there's basically eight responses to Christ. Eight responses to the king. And I've listed them for you there in your outline. I apologize for the outline. The numbers are all messed up. I installed a new software program. And don't ever wait till Sunday morning to actually use the software program you installed. 
So uh, all the, the little numbers, they just got all messed up. But anyway, you can kind of cross them out and just put one, two, three, four, and so forth. Figure that out. But on that little chart, you see the first one. They go into Nazareth, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. They go to Nazareth, and, and at the end of chapter 13, this is the first incident of these eight. And look at verse 57. It tells us what their response was to Christ. It says that they were what? They were offended. They were offended. They were not interested at all in the message that he came to share with them. Nor were they interested in the messenger. Basically, they would have nothing to do with him. is what we're going to find out today. And if you compare this with the most important of the parables, which is the parable of the four soils, which we covered weeks ago, we could say that this is the, 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 the stony ground, the hard soil. It's unresponsive. And then if you look at chapter 14, you see the second of eight responses, and you see Herod. And you remember that he lived in this area and dwelling place there. And he had heard about the fame of Jesus. And his reaction was one of fear. His one reaction was one of guilt. Verse 2 of Matthew 14 says that Herod said this to his servants. This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. <laughs> so you can imagine the fear that was in this guy's heart. He wouldn't get near Jesus because he was afraid of the guilt. He had him beheaded. John the Baptist. So now he thinks he's back. And his response was one of fear, overwhelming guilt, more of the hard, stony soil we see there. And then in verse 13 of chapter 14, we see a crowd. It says there's a great multitude of Jews there. And at the end of 13, it says that they followed him. And what did he do? He feeds them. That's always good for a response from people, right? You want, to, you want people to like you, just give them some food. I mean, that's just the way it worked back then, and it works the same way today. So these people weren't really against him because they were getting food. They were curious. They were, they were followers, but they kind of followed at a distance. Because when you read through there, it doesn't say anything about that they believed or they were taking part of the kingdom, anything like that. It just says they were benefits of this miraculous feeding. So they were curious people. You might call this soil the shallow or the weedy soil, where there's a little bit of curiosity for a while on somebody's heart, and then it just kind of fades away. Come to church a couple times, and it's like back to the same old thing. And then we see the fourth group there, the disciples. In Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. We're not going to read all this. But if you look down at verse 33, you see their response. It says, and those who were in the boat came and what they do? What's it say in verse 33? They worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Wow. Finally, we got some good soil. We got a good response to Christ the king. It comes from, comes from his own disciples. In Nazareth, there was hard ground. In Herod's case, there's hard ground. And in the Jews, the curious Jews, the crowd, they were kind of curious. There's this stony, weedy soil. Finally, we get to a section where there's some good soil, and they believe that Christ is who he said he is. And then in chapter 15, 
verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, and this is the fifth response that we see to Christ, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. What are these people trying to do? They came with a critical heart. They came with a condemnation on their mouths, on their tongues. And they were looking for ways to condemn him. More hard soil. And then in verse 21 and 22, we see a Canaanite woman who cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And in verse 28, it tells us there, That Jesus said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Wow, more good soil. Let it be to you as you desire. And the daughter was healed from that very hour. The seventh group, or a group of Galileans, in verse 30, says, The great multitudes came to him having... With them, the lame, the blind, the mute, many others. And they laid them down at the feet of Jesus, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, when they saw the maim being made whole and the lame walking, and they glorified the God of Israel. Here we have a response of amazement. They were amazed. They weren't too sure about who Christ was or what, but what they saw just amazed them. And they gave glory to God as a result. Once again, it's kind of a, a shallow, weedy soil. There's not, there's not a lot of, of, of depth there, but there's, there's definitely some reaction to it. And the last group comes in chapter 16, where you see the Sadducees and the Pharisees who come with The idea that they're going to attack Christ. They're going to tempt Him. They're going to test Him. They're going to try to catch Him off guard. Eight different responses to Christ. How many of them are of belief, are of faith? Two. What's interesting is when we went through the parables, how many parables did we have? Four, or yeah, seven parables. I mean, the, the parable of the soils, excuse me. How many soils were there? Four. How many good? One. Same ratio. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Same ratio, two to one. Of those that believe and those that don't. So we shouldn't be too surprised when we walk out of this church Sunday afternoon and we're out sharing Christ with the person at the grocery store or the restaurant or whatever. We shouldn't be too surprised that they respond with disdain or rejection about the message of Christ. That's going to be the norm. Yeah, you're going to have some people that believe along the way. That's why Christ says you need to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Because we don't know who's going to respond how. But you're going to face rejection more than you're going to be embraced. That's just the way it is. So if you know that ahead of time, at least you're not going to get out there and and be rejected and feel depressed and go back home. You're going to say, yeah, this is what the Lord said would happen. When I stand up for Christ at work, there's going to be more people that turn against me than are for me. 
That's just the way it is. When I put down my line in the sand and, and morally and, and with my values of Christ in school, well, you know what? There's going to be more people against me and make fun of me than they are going to be in my corner. That's just the way it's going to be. And after these eight situations, he gathers his disciples together in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And they're coming to the borders here of Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of up north in the region. And he calls them together and he wants them to understand that they've been doing this and they've seen these different responses. And so he asked them some questions. In verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, okay, you've been out there. You've been mixing it up with the public. You've been sharing the gospel. You've been sharing about the kingdom. What are they saying? Tell me what they're saying. Give me some feedback. And what do they say? So they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. <laughs> Who is that? That's Herod. Herod says that. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Or even one of the prophets. And he stops him. He says, okay, wait. He goes, I understand, but who do you guys say that I am? He wanted to make sure that they weren't buying into all this stuff that they were hearing. So he asked them a very pointy question. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter in verse 16, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, clearly said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Boldly stated. Not, I think maybe you could be. No, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own, did you, pal? You had a little help from my Father who is in heaven. You got it right. He wanted them to understand who he was as they go out into this hostile environment and continue to share about the kingdom. Now let's go back to our text. With all that in mind, in Matthew 13, verse 53. With all that in mind, it says in verse 53, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. I want to look at his departure for a second. See, he had been ministering with Capernaum there as a base for about a year. And it says, now he left. He left. He departed after giving these parables. And remember at the very beginning of chapter 13 that the parables were kind of hidden. They were, they were clothed uh, so the people couldn't really see what was going on. They were revealed only to the disciples because the people were not willing to believe. And even back in Matthew 11, verse 23, look at what he says about the folks in Capernaum. Matthew 11, verse 23. It says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, 
Look at what will happen. We'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What was he saying? He was saying, I I spent a lot of time there in your midst doing incredible, miraculous things. And in the end, you still won't believe. So you know what? I'm out of here. I'm departing from here. And that's what it says in verse 53. He departed from there. And you know what? Basically, at that point in time, Capernaum's history ended. And they began to feel God's damning judgment begin. It was the beginning of the end. He never went back. Except maybe in passing. He never reestablished a base there. In other words, he's saying, you know what? You had your opportunity to believe. He had come into the city and he had demonstrated his power over and over and over again. And it could only be interpreted as being supernatural, as from God. But now it's over. And you know what? If you go to Capernaum today, no one lives there. There's nothing there. Matter of fact, I'll show you some pictures. This is from our trip to Israel. This is a little plaque they have. It says there, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. Go to the next shot there. And you say, well, it looks like a town to me. There's really nothing there. It's just ruins. It's just a tourist site. Go to the next picture. It says, he left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea. He entered a boat, made a crossing, and came to his own town. On leaving the synagogue, he entered the house of Peter and Andrew and James and John. In Capernaum, the house of the Prince of the Apostles was changed into a church. The original walls, however, are still standing. We came to Capernaum in the house of St. Peter, which at present is a basilica. And then there's a synagogue there as well. Go to the next shot. This is basically the base, the foundation, upon which this synagogue that, that Jesus probably taught in was actually there. It's amazing. Go to the next shot. But here's what you see when you go to Capernaum. <laughs> Piles of rocks. That's it. Part of this is Simon Peter's house. Go to the next shot there. Same thing. You can see how it's laid out. You can understand why a lot of people thought that Jesus, this is the the synagogue and part of the the, the structure there. Go to the next shot. You can see it's, it's just, there's nothing there. It's empty. But you see all those rocks. And a lot of people think that because of the word that was used when and we're going to talk about this a little bit, when it says the son of a carpenter. A carpenter, we think of a carpenter who is a guy who just works with wood, right? Well, the Greek word that's used there, it means, it means hard objects. It doesn't just mean word. It could mean stone as well. And a lot of people think that Joseph was a, 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 a mason as well as a carpenter. And you can just tell by their houses. I mean, they weren't built of wood. But that is the judgment that fell on Capernaum because of their unbelief. There's nobody there. So he left Capernaum, it says in verse 54, and he went back, his arrival, back to Nazareth. 
It says, when he had come to his own country, that's Nazareth, that's where he was brought up. It says, he taught them in the synagogue. Now, this is walking distance from Capernaum. I mean, you could walk there in probably half a day or something like that. It's definitely within walking distance. And so he leaves Capernaum, this place where he had set up camp, and they rejected him, and he goes to Nazareth, where he had been raised since a little child. It's kind of like going to your hometown. And if you turn over to Mark, you can see it has some highlights there. We're not going to turn there just for time, but you can read that on your own. But this is, this is the town of Nazareth. That's his own country. And when he came into the synagogue, it says that he taught them. Now, this obviously isn't the first time that he'd done that. At the very beginning of his Galilean ministry, he went once again to his hometown. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see how this played out. In Luke chapter 4, I want you to see what happened the first time he went to Nazareth, when he went back to teach, because it gives us some insight as to why he would go back again. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 14. This is about a year earlier from our text in Matthew. He had just begun his ministry. And it says in verse 14, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified, By all. Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And so here we have Christ, the very beginning of his ministry, going back to Nazareth, the place where he grew up. In this little town, everything that happened basically happened around the synagogue. That was just the way it worked out. And when you went to the synagogue, you would sit in a very prescribed way. It's very routine. Their worship was very routine. And so Jesus would go into the synagogue in this text here. And they sat and where everybody sat, kind of like our church, you know, certain people have certain seats, whatever. Got more than enough to go around, but, you know, you mix it up once in a while. But some people just like their seat. And it becomes routine. The same way as with the synagogue. You would go in and you would have certain people sitting certain places. You'd be familiar. Jesus was very familiar with their faces, with all the activities went, went on, with all the events. And he's beginning his public ministry. And so he goes to Nazareth as he always Nazareth as he, he always did. And we see here that in the dawn of that Sabbath morning that he would have found his way to the synagogue which had been such a big part of his life growing up there, and take a seat, seeing all these people that he all knew from a human perspective. They were all the same. 
but he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't the little boy Jesus that grew up in their town any longer. Okay? He had begun his public ministry. There is a curiosity about him because everything that was being said, all these people were following him, and the hometown people probably wanted to know, what's, what's all this stuff about Jesus? What is this? What's, you know? And in those days, if you were a famous person in the community and you visited the synagogue, basically you were the default speaker for the day. They would look to you to get up and say something. And that's exactly what happened. So he became the speaker. And it says that he stood up to read, and they always stood up to read. That's why we stand up to read, same reason, to honor the Word of God. It showed the authority of God's Word. And they always sat down to preach. And the reason they would do this is because they never would want to get mixed up the idea that God's authority, when they were standing reading, if the teacher would stand, then that would put the authority of the teacher on the same level as God's Word. And they didn't want to do that. So the teacher would actually sit down showing his submission to the authority of God's Word. Saying, I'm lesser than God's Word. So they stood to read and they would sit to teach. And even when the Hebrew, when they would read the Hebrew, the interpreter who interpreted it into Aramaic, because that's what a lot of the people spoke, he wasn't really permitted to read his interpretation. And so they gave a very high place to the reading of Scripture. And so they stood. And they would read through the prophets or the Torah, things, different things, customs in the synagogue. And it says in verse 17 of Luke 4, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Out of Isaiah 61. And look at what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is a very important text. This basically describes who? The Messiah, right? It describes the coming Messiah. It describes the King. It describes the ministry of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was saying the Messiah is right here in front of you. The Messiah is standing among you. I mean, this is, you know, the greatest day in all of history. The Messiah comes and reveals himself to his own people. It says in verse 20, Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. They wanted to know, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? And what we have in our text, he probably said a lot more than this. I'm sure he did. But it just kind of gives us the highlight here in verse 21. It says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Talk about a mind-blowing statement, beloved. What's he saying? He's saying, what I just read to you, I am what it's talking about. I am who it's talking about. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. And look at the reaction. In verse 21, or verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And look at what they begin to say. Is this not Joseph's son? We've known this kid since he was knee high. This is the carpenter's son, isn't it? Little Jesus. And he said to them in verse 23, You will surely say this proverb to me. Proverbs are very common in that day and age. And here's the proverb that he uses. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Now, you have to understand there was really no need for that. You're talking a close proximity. It's like, say, Jesus was here in uh, Redwood City and the, the people of San... He went to San Carlos and, and you know, uh, trust me, if people was walking around, if somebody was walking around Redwood City healing people, raising people from the dead, don't you think that it might kind of the circle might get a little bigger and some people from San Carlos may come to some of his meetings and know what's going on. Well, that's exactly what happened. And so there was really no need for him to do anything. here. He had done miracle upon miracle and they'd all seen it. That's probably why the synagogue that morning was packed. And then he said in verse 24, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He doesn't stop there. Look at what else he says. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But you know what? To none of them was Elijah sent. Except who? Zarephath. In the region of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. A Gentile. Wow. A non-Jew. You just don't say things like that in a synagogue. He was defending his right to go out and be the light to all the nations. That's what he was doing. He was saying, don't think I just came to you folks. No, I'm here for the whole world. Matthew 4 says that he came as a light to the nations and he was reaching out to the nations. Those who were not God's people in their mind. And in effect, he's saying here, God is not going to do anything special for you. Why is that? Because you're resistant. You're you're hard-hearted unbelief. God doesn't cast his pearls before swine. Look at what he says in verse 27. 
And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Another Gentile. Some historians call Nahum the Hitler of his time. I mean, he was the bottom of the barrel. He was the worst character around. And yet God cleansed his leprosy. And what Jesus is saying here is he's he's saying, you know what? I haven't come to bend my whole ministry and everything to your hard-heartedness. I have come to be the Savior of the world, to those who will listen, to those who will hear. And in verse 28, it shows their response. So all those, this is in his hometown, beloved, in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up against him and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. They're going to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. (laughs) I'll show you. That was the first time after he began his public ministry that he went to his hometown folks. And that's how they treated him. Now one year passes and we're in Matthew 13. Guess where he goes back? I mean, if I went to my hometown and they threw me out of town and threatened to kill me, I don't know if I would go back home. I just, you know, probably would avoid the place. But his desire to return there gives them a second chance, gives them another opportunity, that narrow, prejudiced, hard-hearted little town. He wants to reach out to them once again because that's where he grew up. And he goes back fearlessly and boldly. And graciously to the people, the very people who tried to kill him. And in verse 54, it says, He taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished. He went right back into the eye of the storm, right back into it. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been sitting there in that synagogue when Jesus? went back there and began to teach again? Can you imagine what it would be like? I would have loved to have been able to hear how he taught. I mean, not just his words, but what was his demeanor? What was his voice like? What were his inflections like? I mean, he must have just been able to pull a crowd together and they were just blown away by what he said. They would be sitting there much like they were the first time, everybody in their comfy little seat. And in a way, you have to understand, in synagogues, sometimes it gets kind of boring because it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And what they used to do is rather than just have the rabbi, whoever gets up and deliver the, the speech or the, the, the thing once again, his teaching, what they would do is they would have another character that would come alongside the teacher. 
And uh, this guy basically was there to make things not boring for the people. And so this is what they would do. The teacher would lean over to this individual who was in in so many ways uh, a lot more pleasable to the people, I guess, um, as far as his speaking ability, as far as the way he looked. He was there to basically make this a fun deal. And so the teacher would whisper into the ear of this guy. And then this guy would deliver whatever message that would be uh, delivered. Basically, he'd put on a show. So the teacher would just stand there and say, okay, now say this. And then he would go into his whole, you know, very vain kind of individual called an Amora. Edersheim describes the Amora, this guy who would do this speaking on behalf of the teacher, as this. He was mostly characterized by vanity, self-conceit, and silliness. He just made it kind of fun. I got a big goof-off kind of a guy. And so he stood beside the rabbi, and he thought far more of attracting attention and applause to himself than of befitting his hearers. Basically, he was putting on a show to make things a little more entertaining. Here are some of the qualifications for this guy. He had to have a good figure and form, pleasant to the eye, pleasant expression, a melodious voice. His words were to come like those of a bride to a bridegroom. He had to have fluency, speech as sweet as honey, and as pleasant as milk and honey. His diction was to be richly adorned, like a bride on her wedding day. He was to have sufficient confidence, never to seem disoriented. Above all, he had to be conciliatory and avoid being too personal. That's what they usually had, vanity, self-conceit, and silliness. And they were trying to keep the people's attention during this meaningless routine, which was mostly part of their religious practice. Well, Jesus didn't do that. It says that he sat down and he taught himself. (laughs) He didn't go to that. He said, I don't don't need one of these guys. I'm just going to deal with this on my own. Now, There's basically five things about Christ's teaching that you can characterize it as. First of all, it was authoritative. In Matthew 7, it says, The people marveled at his teaching because he spoke as one having authority. He spoke with authority. Once in a while, I'll watch a show on television called, uh, I think it's called Academy. It's about a police academy. And sometimes you see these guys in there, and they're going through the training. and, And part of being a police officer is you have to have an authoritative voice. Okay, you can't be, uh, you know, hey, put, put, your, put your hands on the wheel, please. You know, that's not going to get anybody's attention. Okay, stop, stop, please stop, or I'll shoot. You know, that's not going to get anybody's attention. You have to be able to express yourself with authority. As a matter of fact, when I was even with the DA's office, you know, I, I was just an administrative kind of technician kind of guy that delivers subpoenas. 
But one tip one of the officers gave me is said, you know what, when you go to some of these down in the, the Palm Springs area, they have these very exclusive housing communities. And they have a security guard and a gated, it's all gated. And when you go up to that gate, if, if you don't have the right kind of authority and you're not kind of allowing them to see that, they're not going to let you into their establishment or their, their, their complex. They don't have to legally unless you have a warrant. And I never had a warrant. So I would always drive up to the window. Yeah, uh, I flashed my little ID badge thing. Steve Converse, uh, Riverside DA's office. I need to go check out Joe Blow in Unit 4 or whatever. And depending on how I would do that, if I did it tentatively, first couple times the guy would say, well, who are you? And wait a minute, let me see that ID. You know, and I, and I, I learned how to say it authoritatively to where they wouldn't even question it. I mean, I didn't even have a gun or nothing, you know. I wasn't a police officer, but they thought I was. And that's all that mattered as long as I got in there and got the subpoena to who I was supposed to get it to. And so Jesus spoke as one having authority. The second thing we see, that he had knowledge. He had knowledge. Obviously, he was God. Thirdly, his grace was filled with speech, gentleness, warmth, sensitivity. That's what the Bible says our speech should be filled with, right? Always be gracious, seasoned. With salt, Paul says, they marveled at his gracious words. Fourthly, he spoke with power. In Luke 4.32, it says, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with power. See, authority speaks of speaking itself, coming with authority. Power speaks of its effect. When Jesus spoke, wow, things happened. Just amazing. And the last thing about his speech is that it was unique. In John 7, 46, they said that there was never a man who spoke like this man. In other words, we've never heard somebody like this before. Totally unique. He had tremendous power. And so he taught them there in that synagogue. Well, look at what happens. They were blown away by him. They were astounded. They were amazed. And look at verse 58. It says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of what? Their unbelief. In other words, all his teaching, all his effectiveness, everything, it didn't lead to anything. Because why? Of their unbelief. See, you can be amazed at Jesus, you can be astounded by Jesus, you can even be astonished by him. But it doesn't mean anything until your heart that is filled with unbelief is transformed by the power of God. I mean, how could you be unbelieving at this point when you just heard and have seen what Christ has done in his public ministry? How can you not believe that this man was from God? I'll tell you why. Because unbelieving is a choice. It's a choice, beloved. It's an act of the will. Unbelief is something you determine. You will not believe. It's that hard, stony ground that we read about in the first parable. See, it's not like the man who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remember that? It's not like that. You know, I'm trying to believe here, Lord. Give me a little help, a a little bit of a push along the way. 
See, these folks had a kind of hard unbelief. It didn't matter what the evidence was. How many times have you went out and you shared with someone the gospel message and it was met with unbelief? I mean, how can you grow up with Jesus, see him for 30 years in the midst of your little town, you see him perform miracles, all this stuff, and yet they still didn't believe? Well, there's dangers of unbelief. And the first one, I'm going to close with this, and it won't be real long, so just be patient. There's dangers of unbelief. And the first one, we're going to cover the rest next week, is unbelief blurs the obvious. Unbelief has the power to blur the obvious. It's the nature of unbelief to blot out what is obvious. I mean, look at verse 54. He teaches, it says they were astonished, and then what do they do? They ask a question. And look at the question they ask. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue, so they were astonished, and, he said, and they said... Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? I mean, that's got to be one of the silliest, moronic questions I've ever seen. That's a dumb question. You say there's no dumb questions. This is a dumb question. It's obvious where he gets wisdom. It's obvious where he does these mighty works, where he gets the power to do that, a child could answer that question. See, but it's the nature of unbelief to make a choice to reject the evidence and to blur what is obvious. And that's what these people were doing. So many times you read some liberal commentators and you read the text and then you read what they say about the text. And then you go back and you read the text again and, they're going, where? and you wonder where they're getting this stuff. It's like they're making up fairy tales or something. They overlook the obvious. Someone was, I think Hassan was talking to me earlier about Bible studies going through, and they were talking about creation. And he said, I'm amazed at people just don't believe that God took seven 24-hour days and he created what, what he says he did. I mean, they come up with all these crazy ideas just because they don't want to believe that. It takes a lot more faith, beloved, when you honestly look at the scientific evidence and you look at the Word of God and you put everything together. It takes so much more faith to believe in a lie like evolution than it does in scientific creationism. It's just common sense. They eliminate the truth. They begin to kind of concoct their own stories. Impossible scheme to make everything possible. It's just silly. And here these people had seen miracle after miracle, healing after hearing, healing. <clears throat> They'd heard these words. And now they're sitting there and they're going, gee, where'd he get this information? Where'd he get this power from? It denies the obvious. I mean, the connection is so obvious. In John 3, Nicodemus understood it. In John 3, Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher that came from where? God. Why? No man can do what you do unless God is with him. 
They looked at Christ's life and the evidence, the belief, and the teaching, and all these miracles. And they said, there's no way a normal person could do this stuff. It was obvious. I mean, he did miracles all over the place. But here it says, he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Maybe he just did a few, I don't know. But even if he didn't do any there, it happened in the area and people saw it. They were aware of it. That's why they were there to listen to him in the first place. They even questioned that he had where, these, where, this, where this power comes from. They didn't deny his power. They didn't deny his wisdom. They didn't deny the mighty works. They weren't saying, oh, you know, this is, this is a, a carnival show. This guy's not real. You know, sleight of hand, something's going on. This is, no, they had so, seen the miracles for themselves and they, they had to acknowledge, yes, this actually happened. They heard him teach and they said, man, we've never heard anybody teach like this before. But then they asked the stupid question, boy, how can he do this? Isn't this Joseph's son? This text is a, is a great, great place to take people when you're dealing with apologetics. I mean, stop and think about it. This is one of the greatest apologetics or defenses of the deity of Christ that we have in the pages of Scripture. Because the fact is simple. It isn't his friends or his disciples or the Christian church even that is affirming that he did these miracles. That's not who's affirming it. It's his enemies. The enemies of Christ are looking at his, his life and going, wow, this guy does some incredible stuff. His teaching is just off the wall, off the chart. Amazing. And over and over and over in the Bible, it's his enemies who never tried to refute the things that he did. They never did. At one point, the Pharisees say, well, we know you're doing supernatural things, but you know what? It's not God, it's who? It's Satan. (laughs) They couldn't dispute that the things were going on. You can read through the whole gospel record and you will not find them denying what he did. How could they? It was reality. John 21, 25 says that the books of the world cannot contain everything that Christ did. We just have a little sliver of what he did. John 20, 30 says, and many other signs which are not written in this book he did. I mean, basically, he banished disease from the land of Palestine and Israel at that time. And over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, My works and words are sufficient to prove to you who I am. You have to make the obvious connection between the supernatural manifestation of Christ and God. In John eight thirty seven, it says, You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I keep teaching and speaking the truth, but because you won't receive it, you basically just turn me off. In verse 43 of that same text in John 8, he says, You can't hear my word because you are of your father who? The devil. 
So I tell you my truth. You won't believe me. John 10, 37, tremendous statement here. It says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. In other words, even if you're not going to hear what I'm saying, look at what I'm doing, folks. That's what he's telling people. That you may know and believe that the Father is in me. It's interesting that his enemies didn't deny his wisdom. They asked where it came from, but they didn't deny it. Which is, in and of itself, a silly question, because if you know anything about Judaism, if you know anything about their culture and their background, the one thing they know, if you ask a Jew, where does wisdom come from? The answer they'll give you is, oh, God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom? That's, that's like 101. And what do they ask? They overlook the obvious. Where does he get all this wisdom? It should have been so obvious. He taught about every subject that related to him. Salvation, worship, sin, evangelism, judgment, heaven, hell, rejection, fasting, prayer, on and on and on. The church, light, freedom, bondage, faith. I mean, you can go on and on and on. On the different subjects that Christ taught. They knew that it was wisdom. No one could ever teach what he taught without having wisdom. They could never catch him in his words. They could never pin him in a corner. When the Pharisees came to him, they always went away just kind of scratching their heads, going, man, we thought we had him. I mean, they, what was he going to say? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I went to... Uh, uh, you know, the, the online school, you know, www, uh, whatever. I mean, what, what answer could he give? Where does he get this wisdom from? It's from God. See, if a person says he needs more evidence to believe, more proof to believe, trust me, that is not the issue. And sometimes we get sidetracked when we're out there sharing our faith and somebody says, oh, well, prove this to me, and they, they throw something out there. It's never a question of the evidence. How many times have you shared the Lord with somebody and they say, oh, well, prove this to me or prove that or prove the Bible is true? Well, have you ever read it? Well, no, but prove to me it's true. How do I know that Jesus Christ is really the Messiah? See, if they keep wanting more and more evidence, that's not the issue. Trust me, that's not the issue. It's not a lack of evidence, beloved. The issue is John 3.18. That's the issue. John 3.18 clearly shows us what the issue is. He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe in me is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Do you know why people don't believe? It's not a lack of evidence. It's a love of evil. It's that simple. 
It's not a lack of evidence. It's because they love their sin. They love their evil ways. If they're asking for more evidence, more than not, that's not even the case. When Jesus did his signs, John 20, 30 says that he did them in the presence of his disciples. Why is that? Because evidence always is affirming to faith of those who believe. He wanted to build up the faith of his disciples. He wasn't doing it as some little sideshow. Oh yeah, you don't believe I'm the Messiah? Well, watch this, zap! You know, that's not what he was into. He wasn't out there trying to convince anybody. He was letting his actions and his words speak for themselves. But those who were hard-hearted, those who were resistant, those who were continually demanding more and more, I need more evidence, show me more, that's not an issue. It's not a lack of evidence, but a love of evil. See, Nazareth's problem was that they loved their sin. They loved their sin. They didn't want Christ at all. That's why when they came to Jesus, they said, we want a sign. Show us something more. And what did he say to them? I'm not going to give you a sign, you adulterous generation. Your problem isn't that you need proof. Your problem is that you love sin. That's the issue. We have to remember, beloved, unbelief. The danger of unbelief is that it blurs the obvious. Unbelief does three more things, and we'll look at those next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know we just kind of laid down a foundation for this text and kind of we're all over the place this morning, but Lord, I pray that you would take the words that were spoken and make them your words. I pray that you would apply them to the hearts that are gathered here. Lord, we're so grateful that we have your word to hold in our hand. We're so grateful that you allow the Holy Spirit to reside within us, to illumine our mind and our hearts, to see your word for what it is. And Father, we pray for those who are in our midst who are unbelieving, who are condemned already because they don't believe in the Son of God. And they're condemned because they don't believe for the love of their sin and darkness. We pray that the light of our glorious Lord, the gospel, would shine to them. That they would see the truth in Christ. That they would see the lives transformed all around them. Help us to be faithful to go out into this lost and dying world. Even though it's hard, in many places, most people are unbelieving. Pray that we would do it with the boldness of Christ. Pray that we would maybe see that one in four, those two in eight that come to you, that are transformed by your power. And that we would rejoice in that and knowing that all of our sharing, all of our witnessing is not in vain. That you have a purpose and a plan. And Lord, we're just to be obedient to that. Father, we pray you bless our fathers today as they go home and hopefully celebrate with their families and Maybe just relax and have some fellowship together. Lord, we, we pray that you would just uh, minister to their lives today. And be with us this week as we long to see more come into your kingdom. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' precious name.
all God's people said, amen.